Um, I encourage you if, you, if you haven't heard the first two messages, um, then uh, get online and have a listen because really uh, they're foundational for understanding where we'll be going in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we heard in the first week about how the Sabbath is God's good gift to humanity uh, and it was given to humanity even before sin entered the world and it was given to Israel even before the law was given. Uh, And we saw that the Sabbath is a a gift to us because we are created by God and because we are redeemed by God. So if you know that you're a creature of God and you know that God has redeemed you in Christ, then the Sabbath principle is is a good gift for you. We heard last week from Mike about Old Testament Israel's neglect of the Sabbath and how it led to judgment, but also how their repeated failure to observe the Sabbath pointed to their need for a greater redemption, one that would come with Jesus and with the gift of the Spirit who would give a new heart and would dwell in us to move us to keep God's commands. But when we come to the time of Jesus, we see a different but equally as disastrous scenario in regard to the Sabbath. It's a tendency of human beings that we we respond to a bad situation by swinging to the opposite extreme. We think that by overreacting we'll undo the harm that's happened and protect ourselves from making the same mistake again. In reality, we can often end up with something that looks different but is just as harmful as the thing that we're trying to protect ourselves from. And this was the case in first century Judaism in regard to the Sabbath. They knew their history. They knew that the exile had happened and that the Sabbath was one of the primary reasons that God gave for their judgment. Instead of disregarding the Sabbath then, like their forefathers, they had developed a meticulous system known as the traditions of the elders to ensure that they knew exactly how to obey not just the Sabbath laws but every law in the scriptures. These traditions uh, were enshrined in what we now know as the Jewish Mishnah and in the Mishnah there are 39 categories of work that were not permitted, containing each one of them containing all kinds of subcategories or specific activities which continued to be added to over time. For centuries the Orthodox Jews, who are the spiritual descendants of the Pharisees, and it's really the the Pharisees' uh, form of Judaism that has formed what we now know as um, Judaism today, they've been working out how they can make sure they can keep the Sabbath as the world changes around them. For example, modern Jews turn off their fridge light before the Sabbath so that when they open the fridge door they're not turning on a light on the Sabbath. 
They also, any lights they know they'll need on the Sabbath, they make sure they're turned on before sunset on Friday. They can use a lift on the Sabbath, especially if it means they don't have to climb a flight of stairs because that's also not allowed, as, as long as it doesn't require them to push the button for their floor because that is also work. They must not erase or damage any writing. So they can only open a package if it involves not tearing through any writing that may be on the package. If they have a library book with a stamp on the side of the edge of the pages, they can't open it because that's damaging writing. They can't build anything, which means they can't put up an umbrella. They can't change the colour of anything, which rules out wearing makeup. Now, Orthodox Jews will tell you that there's only two kinds of Jews in the world, those who keep the Sabbath and those who don't. They say that keeping these Sabbath rules is a wonderful, freeing, life-giving thing. But Jesus spoke differently. He said that these traditions added to the law were heavy burdens, hard to bear and they were placed on people's shoulders. He said that the Pharisees were blind guides when they tithed their herbs and spices, they were straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The Pharisees looked all shiny and white on the outside but that's because they were whitewashed tombs full of dead people's bones. Uh, The the dead people's bones were those that they placed these heavy burdens on to say unless you do all of these specific details you're not keeping the law. We can make two errors when it comes to God's commands. We either disregard them as if they don't matter at all like in the Old Testament times or we latch onto them legalistically as if they're our only means of righteousness. We see that first error in the Old Testament, but we see this second error in the New Testament. And that's why most of Jesus' teaching about the Sabbath is dealing with this second error. And we saw that in today's reading. Jesus was accused of being guilty of disregarding the command based on what he did and his disciples did on the Sabbath. And his response shows us this problem of legalism and he leads us to see what true Sabbath observance looks like. Now there will be times when someone's actions appear to be technically breaking the letter of the law, but upon closer examination they're actually obeying the spirit of the law. And that's what's happening here in Matthew 12. We looked at this incident briefly a couple of uh, weeks ago when Jesus' disciples were picking and eating grain on the Sabbath. So let's look more closely at how Jesus responds to uh, the Pharisees' accusations. Now I've mentioned in the past You may or may not remember a rabbinic technique that Jesus often used in his teaching. It's called the Kal Wahoma 
two Hebrew words which mean small and large. It's an argument that says if something's true for a small thing, how much more must it be true for a large thing? For example, uh, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If giving gifts is true for you who are small, how much more is it true for God who is great? If God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So Jesus uses this technique here in Matthew 12 and he uses two examples from the Old Testament to make his point. The first is when David ate the holy bread. Now the background of this is that David had recently fled Jerusalem. It was in the early days, uh, not long after David had been anointed as king. Saul was trying to kill him because Saul knew that David had been anointed as a king in the place of Saul. David fled and his first recourse was to go to the town of Nob, which at the time was where the tabernacle was situated. He most likely went there because he understood that the tabernacle was a place of refuge for fugitives. They could go there and they could be guaranteed sanctuary until proper justice was carried out by a fair trial. So David came to Nob, to the priest Ahimelech's place, asking for provisions. The thing is though, priests received all of their food from the tabernacle. The law said that a portion of the offerings were to be set aside to be food for the priests and Levites because they didn't have land of their own that they could uh, have crops or, or livestock. And the bread of the presence, which was placed in the holy place to commemorate the manna which the Lord provided for his people in their wandering, that was also there for the priests to eat because every day the loaf would be removed and replaced with a fresh loaf and they were then able to eat the loaf from the previous day. Now, technically speaking, David broke the law by eating this bread and Ahimelech broke it by giving him permission to do so. But this infringement of the letter of the law was actually a fulfilment of the spirit of the law. See, the priests were not exempt from the laws that required them to practice hospitality, to provide food for the travellers and for the poor and those without. They were to, every Israelite was to be willing to use their food to help those in need. The Lord's call to love their neighbour as themselves was a greater or a weightier part of the law that shaped how they obeyed specific commandments. Now, not to mention the fact that in this case the traveller who was in need 
was the anointed king of Israel. If Ahimelech had ignored this request to provide for him, he would be committing treason. And it may be just mere coincidence, but the name Ahimelech means literally brother to the king. So by loving his neighbour, by being loyal to the Lord's chosen king, it appeared that he'd broken the law, but in fact he was truly keeping it. The second example is a bit closer to home because it relates to an actual Sabbath rule. The priests, technically speaking, break the Sabbath command by offering the daily sacrifice but also there was another command that required them to offer an extra two lambs on the Sabbath. So the priests work on the Sabbath. They do far more than what Jesus' disciples were doing by picking a few heads of grain. Yet, Jesus says, they're not counted as guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Why? Because their activity is a direct fulfilment of the law's commands. In fact, because they're commanded to do this work on the Sabbath, they're actually obeying the Sabbath by doing it. And I think Jesus uses this word profane here as a deliberate dig at the Pharisees. He's using their standards to, to show them that if they're going to be consistent with all of their legal demands, they're making the law out to be contradictory by pitting two commands against each other, making it impossible to obey them at the same time. Well, here's the Cal Wahoma, the small and large argument in this. Something greater than the temple is here. He's just shown that the law about loving your neighbour doesn't do away with the temple laws, but rather shaped the way Ahimelech observed them. And now he's shown that a law for the temple doesn't do away with the Sabbath, but shapes the way that a priest observes it. So, how much more then, if the first one is true and the second one is true, how much more then should the command to love your neighbour not do away with the Sabbath, but shape the way that you observe the Sabbath? To drive this point home, Jesus then quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a statement that's echoed many times in the prophets to say that true worship isn't performing a religious ritual but exercising the fruits of repentance through a life that's transformed by God's grace to love God and to love our neighbour. As Romans 12.2 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. 
Any religious observance that doesn't translate into using our whole bodies to worship and serve God isn't true worship. But Jesus didn't just give him give them his words, even though that would have should have been enough. He also demonstrated it in his actions. So he goes on to the synagogue and he heals a man with a withered hand. Again, according to the tradition of the elders, he broke the Sabbath because he was doing the work of a healer. But he again teaches that the large, loving your neighbour informs how to observe the small observing the Sabbath. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value then is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See how he's not overturning the Sabbath command, but saying that doing good isn't merely allowed by the law, but something that's actually required. If we're going to claim that we've kept the law, all the Sabbath observance in the world counts for nothing if in the end it's about loving myself instead of loving my neighbour. If you come to church on Sunday morning because in your heart you feel somehow that God will be upset with you for not coming, then that's, that's a selfish motivation. It means that you're coming here uh, to preserve yourself, to make yourself feel good before God. The Sabbath wasn't about that. The Sabbath was about coming uh, to love my neighbour. Jesus' problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they taught people to keep the law, but that they taught and practised a form of obedience where their traditions detracted and took people away from these large commands of the law to love. They kept the law in a way that would be of most benefit to themselves, which would cause people to applaud them for their great spirituality and piety. It was about love for themselves, dressed up, with a facade that looked like love for God. It was done to maintain their own righteousness. They believed that if they kept obeying the law, when the Messiah came, then they would be counted worthy of entering his kingdom because of their obedience. What a shock it was then when the Messiah came and he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. He made contact with the outcast, the unclean. He called sinners, not the righteous, into the kingdom. He healed the sick and the lepers, who in the eyes of the Jews were sick because either they or their parents had sinned, they were unworthy. He delivered the demon-possessed, who were considered unclean because they must have an association with idolatry. He talked to Samaritans and to Gentiles 
who were considered unclean and unworthy by birth. He told a thief on the cross that he would be remembered when he came into his kingdom. These people that Jesus associated with, they knew that they had nothing to contribute to their righteousness. They knew that even if they spent the entirety of the law of their life following the commands of the law, they would never be able to make up for their sin. So these were the people who heard this call of Jesus to come to him with their heavy burdens, to have Jesus lift them up from their shoulders and to give them rest. And they discovered that the first step in being a person who obeys the Sabbath is to come to the Lord of the Sabbath, to have your burdens released, your sins forgiven and to learn from him, to take his yoke upon us to learn how to truly keep the Sabbath. So, what were the Jews to actually do then on the Sabbath? We've talked a lot about the importance of knowing it and of obeying it correctly and how Jesus enables us to do so. Well, what did the Sabbath obedience to the Sabbath actually look like? What was it supposed to look like for Israel? Well, one thing it didn't look like was going to the temple every week. We heard that reading of the importance of the temple that was built there by Solomon. But it wasn't a Sabbath requirement that you go to the temple every week. That would have been impossible for most Jews anyway because they lived several days' journey at least from Jerusalem. So they would have spent their entire lives just travelling back and forth if that was what was required. But neither were they to sit around and do nothing, which we might think is the case if they're told don't do any work. Well, does that mean I just sit still and do nothing? They were actually instructed in Leviticus 23 verse 3 what they were to do. For six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So the Sabbath was to be a day of holy convocation. Now, convocation is a word we rarely use, if at all, today. It's translated in other places in the scriptures as assembly or congregation. It means literally the called out ones, in that the people were called to come out of their normal situations, which involved their work, and to gather as God's holy people, to separate themselves come together to worship and to hear from the Lord. The Greek translation of this word, convocation, is ecclesia, which we know in its English translation as church. In the early years of Israel, these holy convocations on the Sabbath would have taken places probably in the homes of the community leaders and the elders. And especially after 586 BC when they were scattered from the land and didn't necessarily have that capacity to meet 
in homes, they would arrange to meet in other locations. And sometimes, over time, uh, they would have a building which they uh, called a synagogue, which means literally to bring together. Now, by the time of Jesus, synagogues were set up across the Roman Empire and beyond in any town in which there were at least ten Jewish men. And even if there weren't enough men in the town to form an official synagogue, they would still gather outside the town walls to pray. When Paul came to Philippi, which was a largely Gentile city, which didn't have a synagogue building, he went outside the city on the Sabbath where he expected to find a place of prayer. And he did find such a place and he preached the gospel to them there and Lydia, the lady who uh, sold purple cloths, uh, which meant she was a wealthy, influential woman in the city, she heard the gospel and she believed and that was the start of the church in Philippi. So these synagogue gatherings, they involved reading and being taught from the scriptures, praying. There were, by the time of Jesus, there were prescribed prayers to be prayed every Sabbath in the synagogue. They would talk about meeting the needs of those within their community and they would enjoy fellowship together as the family of God. So it shouldn't surprise us then to hear that the very first Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. See, they simply continued doing what they'd already been doing in the synagogue, but with a newfound joy and hope that they had found in their Messiah who had come, who had died and risen for them and who was uh, with them now by his Holy Spirit. Their faith in Christ didn't mean they gave up this practice of meeting regularly. If anything, it was enhanced to the point that some of them, we're told, even met on a daily basis. We'll see more next week that rather than dismissing the Sabbath principle, the first Christians found it a renewed and a reinforced way of expressing their new life and their freedom in Christ. Some have said that the Sabbath command no longer applies to Christians, that it's a command that's now obsolete. There's a number of reasons why that's wrong. First, as we've seen, the Sabbath was instituted long before Israel, long before the written law existed, made by God at creation, even before humanity sinned. So the Sabbath isn't merely a corrective for sin, it's part of the good design of humanity that applies apart from sin. The idea of rest, as we saw, isn't just that you have a time of rest to recover from your toil, but it's a time of enjoying, of celebrating, of rejoicing, of worship. As Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, 
not man for the Sabbath and not just for Israel. So the Sabbath was given at creation and it was reinforced for Israel the moment they came out of Egypt before they received the law. So while the way in which the Sabbath is observed in the New Testament is different, as long as we are God's creatures made in his image, redeemed by him, the Sabbath command still applies. Now, secondly, some say that Jesus often quoted from the Ten Commandments but he never directly quoted this commandment. Although he made mention of all the other nine, he didn't uh, explicitly reinforce the Sabbath. So they say if Jesus didn't command it, we don't need to do it. Well, that comes from a wrong understanding of how Jesus taught the law. We can't say that just because Jesus doesn't mention something specifically in the law that it doesn't apply to us. Jesus was very clear when he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfil them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, we know there are some parts of the law, the ceremonial law, that have been made obsolete by Jesus because they were designed to only be the shadows until the reality came in him. But Jesus and the apostles, they make it clear which parts of the law these are. So, unless we see Jesus or the New Testament tell us that something in the law is obsolete, we should assume that it still stands. Thirdly, we don't only follow Jesus' words, but we look at Jesus' actions. Jesus observed the Sabbath regularly and by doing so, affirmed it. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And he did the same in Capernaum, which he made his home during his ministry and in other towns, wherever he travelled around. This is important for us to see. Jesus was deliberate about what he did and what he didn't do. He refused to comply with the traditions of the elders because they were additions to the scriptural law. But he made it very clear in his actions that the moral law of God, summed up in the Ten Commandments, stood firm and the Sabbath command is part of that moral law. As Christians, those who love Jesus, we know that if we love him, we'll also obey his command. So God's law should be as important to us as it is to Jesus. Now we tend to shy away from statements like that, don't we? We are under grace and not under law. So we want to avoid anything that sounds too much like legalism, even from using the word law. And there can be a good corrective in that. 
But as we'll see in a few weeks when we look at the book of James, God's law is called the perfect law, the law of liberty. So while the first thing that the law does to us is reveal our sin and condemn us to death, once we've passed through that condemnation by being united to Christ who bore our sins at the cross, we can now look at the commands of God as a picture of true life and liberty. See, grace doesn't remove the law. Grace sets us free to obey the law with joy. Jesus didn't obey his father's commands, including the whole of the law, in order to earn favour with his father, but because he loved his father. He already knew his status before him as the father's beloved son, on whom the father's pleasure and favour already rested. For him, the law, including the Sabbath, was a delight because he delighted in his father. In Christ, our position before the Father by grace is the same. So we don't obey the command in order to earn righteousness. Rather, we receive the righteousness of Christ as a gift from God so that we may be set free to obey his commands. It's only when we're in Christ that we can no longer see the Sabbath as a burden, but as Isaiah says, we'll call it a delight because we delight in Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, next time to conclude this series, we'll look a bit more at what it means then for us as Christians to live in the fulfilment of the law by Jesus and to know him as the Lord of the Sabbath, and to obey his commands. Because we're not a a political or national entity like Israel, the way that we obey and express the Sabbath will look different to Israel. For example, we'll look at why Christians meet on the first day of the week instead of the seventh as well as how expressing the Sabbath command today both helps us stand firm in our hope of the new heavens and earth, but also in our proclamation of the Gospel to the weary, restless world in which we live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear again your call and command to us to come to you, we who are weary and burdened and to receive the rest that you give. We come to you as the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of all creation, the Lord of our redemption, our Lord, our Saviour and our King. We ask, Lord, that you will give us the rest that we so uh, desperately need, the rest from our striving, the rest from the, uh, the pressures and the fears and the anxieties of this world in which we live. We ask that you will show us what it means to truly hear that call and to, uh, to enter into your rest. 
We thank you that by your blood you have redeemed us from the condemnation of the law, from our own efforts to be righteous in and of ourselves and that we can, in coming to you, can simply rest from all of our labours and no true peace in you. Amen. We're going to uh, sing our final hymn, a hymn about uh, the grace of God shown to us um, through his son. So let's stand and worship.